0: So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free. And ask yourself, what will you create today?
1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with journalist Anand Giridharadas about his career, about a divided America, and about tech monopolies. It is insane, the power they have. It is nothing
2: like, to me, it is a thousandfold the seriousness of any of the other monopolies that we have broken up in this country. Here's
0: Debbie Millman. About 13 years ago, Anand Girdardas was working for McKinsey & Company in Mumbai, India. But then he moved out of business consulting into writing and journalism and hasn't looked back since. He started writing for the International Herald Tribune and the New York Times and became columnist for both. He's also written two books, including The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas about a Muslim immigrant's efforts to keep the state from executing the white supremacist who tried to kill him. His latest book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, is coming out later this year. Anand Girdardas, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now, given all of your major accomplishments, how do you feel about New York Magazine recently including you in an article titled The Golden Error of Male Hair.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, as a writer, you're hoping for that Pulitzer or that National <laughs> Book Award or that Nobel. But in the absence of such honors, um, it, was, it was one of the greatest honors of my life. I'd be lying if I, if I said otherwise.
0: In a Reddit Ask Me Anything that you did, one commenter said, I don't have any questions, but your hair looks amazing. What is it about your hair that seems to warrant so much attention?
2: You have to ask bald people that. You know, <laughs> I, I think w- one of the things that happens is my hair is very polarizing, like everything in America today. So when I go on television, there are people who say nice things about it. And then there's a lot of people who I suspect are... Folically challenged men in, in their basement somewhere who who voted for Donald Trump and don't want me pounds, in America maybe. anyway, and for whom my hair is like the ultimate offense, and they just kind of want to deport it. Um, so I get a lot of hate mail uh, also, uh, probably way more than the love mail. Um, specifically, really? yeah, like your hair needs to go back to its country, that kind of thing. Um, but you know, the trolls are getting more creative you know like go back to your country so unimaginative I think telling someone's hair to go back to its country is it's interesting hate
0: does it hurt your feelings
2: no I've learned things from my trolls I mean I'm not gonna repeat them here but I would say one out of every 10 things trolls tell you is actually useful information
0: can you give us one example
2: uh, um, yes so I go on MSNBC a lot where I'm a political analyst and Often, after an appearance, people will give you, you know, these horrible, horrible comments on your appearance. And it's, it's just—it's terrible. Like, who are these people who actually—
0: Why do they bother to watch? Like,
2: right before going to work, they're like, let me just make a couple mean tweets about someone's appearance. But one out of every ten of those is like kind of—there's kind of like a useful sartorial tip in there. You know, so one guy, one guy was like, you know, with that shirt and that suit, this guy has no neck. I was like that's pretty mean. I started looking at the pictures. I was like, you know, I have a shorter than average neck. I'm not I'm not ashamed to say.
0: <laughs> I have to look at your neck.
2: Yeah, it's it's a little it's 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 a little it's probably 40th percentile, you know. And so I asked a friend of mine, that's simple, just wear just wear t-shirts with your suit jackets. I tried that. Looked a little better, so I do that sometimes. I was like, you know, thank you troll. My wife is never going to tell me the truth about my Neck length.
0: Well, she probably likes the way your neck. She may not.
2: I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes you just have to go on TV and endure the wrath of Trump voters to find out important truths about your body.
0: Your father traveled to the United States from India with $7 in his pocket. And you've written about how the first thing you ever learned about India was that your parents had chosen to leave it. You go on to state that the country was lost to you in America, and you had to reassemble it in your mind from fragments of anecdotes. What did you think of India before you visited it?
2: Um, I visited it from a pretty young age before I could really think. So those two processes were kind of in parallel. But the reality that I think a lot of immigrant families, second generation people like me don't talk about so openly is... You have this relationship to the old country, the homeland, back home, whatever people call it. But the founding story of that other place is that the people you love the most, the people to whom you're most attached in childhood, voted to get out of that place with their feet. And so I think the honest account of the kind of my founding story with India is um, it's a story of exit. An exit for some reason, because these are people you respect who obviously made a wise decision. And then when I would visit as a child, there were a lot of things that confirmed. I mean, I I had a good time, but there were a lot of things that confirmed and built on this storyline of this is a place worth leaving. You know, I had never seen a beggar in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Um, As a 4-year-old, 5-year-old, 6-year-old, in a car in Delhi or Mumbai, um, it's pretty jarring to see. A I just four came or back five, from India by the way. On the other side of the glass, banging. You know,
0: heartbreaking and terrifying. And it never and...
2: gets easier, but it's really jarring at that age. And then the fact that this was a place where my parents left because they felt, particularly my father, that his potential couldn't be developed there, and so I had a very strange relationship to it. But I think one of the funny things about wanting to be a writer is, and I got some very good advice along the way from a mentor of mine, Jill Abramson, that you kind of run towards things that make you uncomfortable, and that makes more interesting writing than staying close to home. And so eventually that kind of relationship that began with that negative storyline was the reason for going there, and, and then going there transformed the story.
0: Your father would eventually graduate from Harvard, And you've written that it was not long before my mother was backing a red Oldsmobile larger than many Indian dwellings down an icy driveway in suburban Shaker Heights, Ohio, not long before my father, with his Indian accent, was counseling the executives of America's leading companies. They discovered new music that was not their own music, new food, not their own food. They took up new styles of dressing. They soaked in the world. How did they describe their adaptation to this wildly different culture to you, or did they at all?
2: It was all stories. You know, we're a family that, you know, blissfully in the age before texting and Instagramming, we just talked a lot. We talked with love. We talked in conflict. We, you know, there's a lot of invariably conflict when— Frankly, parents are from one place and the kids are from another place, and you literally have two countries in a house.
0: You wrote about how you would sometimes have more authentic Indian food for dinner and sometimes you'd have spaghetti.
2: Yeah. The India that I, in a way, carried in my mind when I actually ended up moving there at 21, the India in my mind was, was not a monolith. It was just this kind of collage of all these little stories and the little meanings that either I attributed to them or or that my parents had kind of squeezed from them. Stories of all kinds. Stories about the superiority in some ways of Indian culture, the sense of family, the sense that, you know, over there people respect their elders. Over there people are close. My mom used to always say this thing, still says it, you know, in America no one will ever pop over unannounced for tea at 5 p.m. and she says it with this like real sense of mourning. You know, the reality is my mom is quite busy at 5 p.m. on most days, not necessarily available to be popped in on for tea, um, which is also what America does to you. And then there were the the stories about all the things my mom was not allowed to do because she was a woman, and the fact that she couldn't go to a movie theater with this person or that person because people might see and think that she was a fast girl or a loose girl. And so stories of, of things, of, of repressions and of stagnation that justified... Our life where it was now. And that's very important. And it was in going back to India later on my own that I got a chance to kind of test these stories against the reality of my own perception of this of this place that I had made from the collage.
0: Despite the idyllic setting that you've written about, and you described the town you grew up in as a sprawling neighborhood of brick and Tudor houses set on vast yards with the duck-strewn ponds, meandering lanes, and ample sidewalks that had lured millions of Americans into suburbia, but you said this on The Daily Show in 2011, as a child, the only thing you don't want to be is different from people, and you felt different. How did that shape you?
2: I think profoundly, probably. Um, So many people do it that it becomes normal, but it's a wild thing to be from one place and make it another. It's a wilder thing still to be from one place and raise children who are citizens of some other place who need to, on one level, honor you and your values as parents. At another level, need to be authentic and like able to play in the place you've brought them you know you've brought them here so it's kind of your job to allow them to be who they need to be to be here but they're also your kids and you want to raise them in a particular way and there's a lot of inherent tension there that could take a form of religious tension it could take the form of you know for things in my family it was like do you get to drive with other kids to the school dance or do you have to get your parents to drop you off
0: Were you made fun of
2: Yeah. I had a particularly bad couple years in a school in Cleveland, in middle school. And what was funny there is, you know, it was a double whammy because I was Indian American in a a school without too much diversity. But we actually, we lived in Cleveland for seven years, my first seven years. We moved to Paris, France for three years, where my parents kind of decided they wanted to become immigrants again and try it out. And then we moved back from Paris once they realized it's actually not... Easy to become French, but it is pretty easy to become American. There's a difference. Interesting. Um, when we got back and I went to this new school, not only was I an Indian American kid in this kind of mostly white world, but I was also re- like we re- just returned from France, speaking French. And I, you know, my mother once heard herself, I think, in that school when she came in for a meeting, referred to as the French lady, right? And it was just a a reminder of how mind blowing it was for a lot of people in that very placid relatively kind of monocultural world of Shaker Heights, Ohio, to process people who are not only brown, but had just come back from France. All of us would kind of yawn at that today in the world that we're now in. Um, So that, you know, I was very badly bullied in that particular school for a year and a half. It's really interesting. I look back and I haven't thought about it in a while, but the way we thought about that problem at the time, I remember, was interpersonal. Maybe there was something I was doing. Maybe there was something this person was doing or that person was doing or that. And I think we didn't have the language for understanding it as a systematic thing. One, a lot of people have kind of studied and talked about this kind of issue of bullying. But two, the cultural element of it not being easy to be different.
0: Was it really more difficult to acclimate in France than it was in the United States?
2: There was an opportunity that came up for my dad in France within his company to transfer, and so he took it and we had this amazing adventure. We had so much fun as a family I mean i my dad and I every Saturday morning would go on a little walk to the boulangerie and get a bread and pastries to the family and I would walk all around the city. It was just it was an amazing life we had there. but I think my parents, as adults realized very quickly that maybe in their mind having had a pretty easy run at immigration and assimilation into Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and they realized very quickly that France was not America. Um, and they realized that they were welcome guests, but they were they would never become French. Um, Why? So this gets to the question of in a moment when it's easy to be down in America. And I think there are many things to be down about. And I think America has a lot of things that it needs to look at itself and look itself in the mirror and 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 see and fix but there's something extraordinary extraordinarily special in the dna of this country that does at its best in theory say that anybody can become american and there are actually not that many countries that genuinely believe that does america leave people out of that yes Does it fail to live up to that? Yes. Is there an entire black exception to that story that's a 400-year story? Yes. But I think to only talk of those things and not talk about the remarkable way in which, frankly, I mean, I've traveled around the world to know that when I go to Europe and people ask me where I'm from and I say the United States, there's this kind of, people don't believe me, right? And here, the people who don't believe me are like racist, fringy people. Right? But it, it does not blow anybody's mind that I'm American in America. In India, it blows people's mind. Yes. So it's easy to be down in this country, but at its best, this country actually believes in a post-identity concept of a, an American. It, it in theory, believes that anybody can be this thing. Again, a lot of work to do to actually live up to that. But I've been to a lot of places in the world that don't even have that as an ideal. And it's an extraordinary ideal.
0: As you were growing up, you would ritualistically watch the Sunday morning political talk shows with your family, and you described it as such. We parsed and argued and jeered at the screen as national figures delivered careful, poll-tested talking points. What drew you to these shows at an age when most kids at that age were playing video games or playing ball in the street?
2: Yeah, maybe I should have been doing those things could have helped with the bullying um, what's funny is I'm now working for MSNBC we used to always watch you know NBC meet the Press I'm now like on air with people who I don't really want to tell that I used to like watch you when I was like 14 and 15 and like used to be a celebrity it's So cool me. yeah um, we were living in Washington at the time we'd moved from you know so it was the Cleveland Paris back to Cleveland for a little bit and then Washington where I spent most of middle school and high school and so you know the sport of Washington is politics. It's in the air. You go to certain restaurants, you'll see, you know, political figures. There you know, a lot of politicians' children in my, in my school.
0: You went to Sidwell, right? I went
2: to Sidwell. You know, Chelsea Clinton was there. The Obama girls were there. You know, so it was, it was an unavoidable part of the atmosphere in, in my childhood there. And so those shows were like, I just, I don't know, I just love them. It's funny, like some of those shows that I'm now on, I understand how much of a game it is now for a lot of people who go on, these politicians who go on and kind of say nothing at great length. But it was just fascinating to me. And I think think for me, it had something to do with also my own journey of thinking about what it means to be an American. And I think for my parents, that was one set of things around hard work and, like, making it work as an immigrant. And that had to do with a lot of practical things because that was their burden. Um, That was not my burden because they took care of it. And so I think my burden had a lot more to do with trying to understand this system and understand this society. it's probably what led me to be a journalist in the sense that, like, I never wanted to kind of work on the sidelines of the society. I I didn't want to do some job and then happen to be, you know, I wanted whatever I did to have something to do with the enterprise of, of the society, with government politics, public life, common life.
0: Even back then? I think
2: so. And, you know, I had different things I wanted to do. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to, you know, um, my dad and typical... I mean, I always joke that um, when, when like, other Indian Americans of my generation meet my parents, they're often like, oh, my God, you got it really easy. Like, you have the very relaxed, cool, do-whatever-you-want Indian, Indian immigrant parents. And it's true. My parents are really remarkable. But, you know, they had a hybrid thing of... The kind of Indian part and the immigrant part of them was, like, you have to really you know, work your butt off and be the best at whatever you do. That was the, you know, but the part where they became American and relaxed is like that whatever you do can really be whatever you do. That was like their compromise. Like, do whatever, but just be like really good at it. And I remember my dad... Literally, once said to me, he's like, you know, do whatever you want. Like, want to do law, for example, like you should try to be on the Supreme Court. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, okay, good, good. Awesome. I'll just, yeah, I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just do that. Yeah. Um, he
0: hid. He was very proud of you. Yeah,
2: exactly. But that, that was kind of, That's kind of like the Indian American equivalent of like, yeah, go live a little. Just like be, you know, go go be wild. Just be on the Supreme Court.
0: At seventeen years old, you landed an internship at the New York Times.
2: You really did your research on this show. I'm, I'm afraid where this is going. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How on earth does one get an internship at the New York Times at 17? Um, well, I
2: was very lucky. Um, uh, someone in my school is a couple years younger than me, um, worked on the school newspaper with me. I was the editor of the paper. Of course, you were. Um, her mom was an editor at the Times. Um, and I had this school directory, which gave people's home phone numbers. And this was a an editor in Washington named Jill Abramson, who would, of course, go on to edit the New York Times many years later. And I called the home number. And this is 19 years ago. But but the way I remember it is I called her and I asked for an internship at the end of my senior year. And she said, you know, I'm in charge of our impeachment coverage. the president of the United States is in the middle of an impeachment trial. It's a little overwhelming here. And, and I called again. And she was like, You know, thanks for the persistence, but it's really, it's like, and that was that, so I didn't call. And then, as I remember, it, shortly after Clinton was acquitted in the Senate, um, I get this call, like, a few months later. And it was sort of like, sorry if I, you know, didn't have time before, brush you off. Are you still interested in an internship? You know, which is like the Pope calling you, asking if you want to be the Pope, or the closest I will get to something like that. So I went in for my internship, and, you know, I thought, I'm going to make some amazing coffee for— Maureen Dowd and Tom Friedman or whatever and the first day Jill says to me so like what do you want to write about and I'm 17 I'm thinking I don't think that's a very good idea um, you, know, you the New York Times didn't say that did you I did not I was like I, mean, I, I think I probably just you know thinking inside is not a good idea and outside said you know like, like every male in the history of the world like yeah I can totally do that You know, her specialty at that time was money in politics and lobbying and campaign contributions. So she kind of gave me a couple ideas of directions of things she, you know, maybe had gathered some string on or thought were interesting. And I wrote two stories. Back then, there was a scandal that ended this practice. But back then, if you were not a staffer, the the byline would just say, by the New York Times. Yes. So I wrote two by the New York Times articles. One was about, it all sounds so quaint given what's happened to America. One was about these early campaign donors to Bush and Gore in 99 who had given maxed out which meant giving $1000 to both Bush and Gore obviously they're just trying to like secure themselves in whatever administration comes i mean $1000 sounds so quaint right now but this was before was Citizens max, right? united it was the max
0: now did you discover this or were you assigned there's, an, there's this? an amazing
2: organization in Washington still called the Center for Responsive Politics i think it's opensecrets.org you know you have to you have to file all campaign contributions, all the campaigns do it, but it's a mess. And this organization organizes it all, puts it in a database. I mean, it's like the greatest database that no one ever, you know, like messes around in. I mean, you should just go mess around in right now. You can find out, you know, who did the tobacco industry give the most money to this year? Who did, you know, and it's it's, it's amazing. So I just played around with that. And they help if you, you know, if you work for a place like The Times, which I very, you know, flimsily did, they will help you. So you tell them you want to do something like this, they'll actually custom do some research for you because their whole goal is to expose the, this game. Um, and then I did another story, which also sounds quaint. It was about how the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, had responded to a, a request from Bill Bradley's campaign to allow credit cards to be used in making campaign contributions. Now, it sounds insane to us, right? But it's 1999. And the whole idea—the Bill Bradley campaign made this argument that in the future, the Internet is going to be the locus of politics. It's going to be the Internet where people are organizing, raising money, and— How forward-thinking of him. I know, him. And, and, that, and that his kind of campaign was an insurgency against against Gore would require this kind of more Internet-driven, grassrootsy approach. And so, therefore, he petitioned a lawyer named Bob Bauer, uh, was his lawyer, push for it, ended up becoming Obama's lawyer— and it was, it was a story about this like little historic moment when the FEC decided to allow people to make credit card political contributions. Um, so those are that was my that was kind of my beginning in journalism.
0: You went on to the University of Michigan and majored in history. Why not a major in journalism or writing?
2: I don't know who gave me the advice, but by that point, I had received the advice from my field many quarters, perhaps Jill, perhaps others, that it was better to study. The world, and you know, journalism is a craft, but it's a craft that needs to be applied to something. It requires a, it requires a medium, um, and the medium is the world, and it's just a craft you learn by doing. And frankly, a lot of journalists study things like history, and that's important. Um, there's probably no better way to figure out like the backstory of how we got right here, by definition, but. You know, it's really important to have journalists who understand economics. It's really important to have journalists who know how to read a balance sheet, an income statement, which I don't. You know, it's really important to have journalists who understand the world of art and design and are not just, you know, showing up and saying what they think. Um, So it felt to me, and I'd absorbed this kind of, this idea, that it was important to really ground yourself in some kind of deeper discipline and then learn the craft on the side through work.
0: You went on to also study at Oxford University and Harvard University. What did you study there?
2: I did a junior year abroad in Oxford, um, which is truly one of the greatest educational experiences of my life, in part because it's a totally different system. You have one or two tutorials per week. So my week would consist of the following. Um, A one-hour meeting with a professor in which I would defend a 10-, 15-, 20-page paper that I'd written for that week. They would ask a question. I remember this great teacher, David Priestland, who's still there. One of his questions was like, okay, what was Marx's theory... Next week, what was Marx's theory of what would happen after the revolution and how plausible is it? That's it. That's the question. Now you go away. you got a week. You know, there's so many libraries at Oxford. You'd, I'd go around on my bicycle to this library, that library, take home 10 or 12 or 15 books, Um write a 15- to 20-page paper, um, slip it under the door of the professor the night before, um, and then go in and talk about it for an hour, repeat and rinse.
0: So you had to defend your ideas.
2: To so defend your ideas. I don't think for me it would have been a great way to start my college education, um, but having done a couple of years of the lectures and grounding and basics, it's just such an extraordinary way to get to that next level. And I think it's one of the one of the things, that that year I was very clear that I wanted to be a writer because it's just – what a thing to, like, read books and then write something and then
0: – And then get to talk about them. What did you do at Harvard?
2: So after I, – I went to India before that. Um, so I moved to India right after college, had a, you know, a kind of brief misbegotten year – trying to work in business. Oh,
0: I want to talk about that misbegotten year. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) And Um, then you'll tell us why you went to Harvard. You want to tell us first.
2: why don't we do that in order?
0: Okay, good. So you got a job at McKinsey, but before you got the job at McKinsey, you had a hard time finding a job as a writer. Now, given your experience as an intern at the New York Times at 17, why was it so hard for you to find a job as a writer?
2: I always joke with my sister. I mean, I've, I applied for some other internship at the New York Times, I think, while I was on that internship and I got rejected. And I said, you know, I must be the only person who gets rejected from an internship while they're in an internship um, at that same place. I mean, this is a very interesting thing, particularly as we talk about diversity in journalism and new voices. Journalism historically has not been a profession that recruits. There's very little thinking about drawing people in. Um, developing them who who are who are people you know what's the 20 year view on this person's career and maybe that was different 20 years ago you know but i also came of age and was entering this profession in this moment of disaggregation and internet and the advertising business dying and this kind of depressive era in media and what was just fascinating to me is i kind of managed to have this career that was that was reasonably good without having ever really anybody have like a bigger conversation about like what do you want to do next? Like what's what are your goals? What just things that are normal in any other business? It's all just feels often very happenstancey. There's just not an easy all of which is to say, when you're twenty one years old, I had you know, compared to most people, a leg up in that I'd interned with the Times at seventeen. The following year I'd done an internship that had a connection to the Times. It wasn't for the Times, but I ended up writing for a lot of New York Times owned newspapers in the American South. It's hard to think of someone at 21 who had, you know, a better leg up. Jill Abramson was a champion of mine. It was just really hard to get in there. And you have to kind of find this and find it. And it just wasn't, like, there wasn't a place that you could go to, like, apply for jobs. Monster.com, you know, right. right. Um, so I tried this and that. I also, you know, wanted to go to another country and eventually decided that country was India. And so I just said, I'm going to to find some way to go to India. I'm going to actually make a priority of going to another country because I thought that would help me as a writer. And frankly, uh, although it didn't end up being a phenomenal fit, the only (laughs) kind of enterprise in the world that doesn't care what you studied or who you are—that's willing to like take you and put you anywhere—is consulting. So I became, you know, I followed my father's footsteps, although his were illustrious and he had a great career. Um, you know, I followed them and and kind of besmirched my own my own name, but but made an attempt at it for for a year.
0: So you went to McKinsey, which, for those that might not know, it's sort of the Harvard of business consulting firms. It's the best or one of the best. I can't imagine that it would be easy to get a job there either. I mean, I have a whole crew of graduate students listening to this interview that are probably starting to think, wow, maybe I should just apply to McKinsey. It doesn't really work that way. I don't know. I mean,
2: I think I also presented a weird case, which is I was sitting there in Michigan, and I applied for a job in the India office, and I don't think anybody had ever done that before. Okay. I went on an Indian salary where I could barely afford, like, a spare room in someone's house, and I just wanted to get out there. Um, I think when I did get out there I was the first like entry level person not from India not raised and educated in India um, but I just I kind of wanted to to get out there and I wanted to see the world and what was really fascinating about McKinsey is like I literally got there I had no idea what was going on I get this apartment some a guy uh, you know contact of a family friend arrives in my apartment with like a briefcase of tax-free phones cell phones I get my cell phone and I'm few weeks later, advising some pharmaceutical company on like their leadership development pipeline. I can assure you, I can assure you, I know nothing then or now about uh, leadership, development, pipelines, (laughs) pharmaceuticals. Uh, What else do I not know about? Anything involved in that situation, I knew nothing about. And I mean, there are definitely people in that business who know a lot about, the worlds they're in, but I was not one of them. And what's amazing is, like, people still listen to you, and it was actually kind of this terrifying thing to me. Maybe this is just my own self-justification, but I, I really think the writing world is different. Like, I really think there's no tolerance for people who don't know what they're talking about, and, and it's just harder to hide in writing. But, you know, what, what, what is easy to conceal with a PowerPoint is, is kind of hard, is hard to conceal with, with, you know, a written paragraph.
0: You described moving to India as the ultimate rebellion against your parents, moving to the country they had worked so damn hard to get out of. So not only did you move to the country they'd worked so damn hard to get out of, you went to work for the firm that your father was working at. What did your father think about all of this?
2: You know, a lot of my Indian American friends who I ended up making in India because there were a bunch of us who kind of did what I did, Almost all of their parents hated the fact that they'd moved to India. Almost all of their parents really did feel like they had annulled 30 years of hard work. My parents did not feel like that. And I think that's part of that progressive spirit that they really have that's different, frankly, from a lot of people. Um, You know, as I say in my book, like, they, I think, understood my story as a continuation of their story, which was they were chasing the frontier of their future, and I was Tracing the frontier of my future, and that happened to be their past. But they were very supportive. I thought I was leaving for six months or a year. I ended up staying six years. I wrote them a letter about uh, a month or two after arriving, an impassioned you know, 3,000-word letter or something like that, explaining why I had made a horrible mistake. This was not a country I could live in. It was insupportable. I just had to get home. But I, but I, I wanted them to think I wasn't flighty, so I laid out my case, And it was kind of this funny thing, like, I mean, I think I remember their reaction on the phone was a little bit like, you don't have to explain this to us, like, we left India too, you know? But why did you want to leave? It was just hard. India's a hard place. And to be honest, though, I think the work angle matters a lot. India's a hard place, and if you're doing work that kind of, as mine was, had nothing to do with the place, it's just kind of this abstract spreadsheets about things you don't know about, then you're just living in a hard place for no reason. As soon as I became a journalist, then suddenly all the complexity and difficulty of India became my subject. Then I loved it. I think it's, it's hard to live in a hard place where you're just trying to like do some job and go to sleep. When understanding that place becomes your job, well, that opens a whole different thing.
0: So you did get a job. Uh, The New York Times took over the International Herald Tribune and you got a job as an international correspondent. I say that very sort of haphazardly. You got a job. Given how difficult it was for you back before you moved to India, what made it possible for you to get the job at that time? I
2: mean, you know, these things are all happenstance and not replicable. You know, I was very, very lucky. I mean, to one, I did have the fact that I had done these internships. The fact that I you know, had a champion in Jill, um, who really was such an amazing champion of my work. But then this big thing happened where the New York Times acquired full ownership of the International Herald Tribune, which they used to have used to share with the Washington Post. The reason they acquired it was this idea that New York Times journalism no longer needed to be confined to the United States. The people were going to want to read it in Asia. In South America, and they bought the IHT as the idea of—it ended up becoming the International New York Times. And the idea was, if we're going to write about the world for Asians and for South Americans and for Europeans, um, we need new correspondents um, who are not just writing for America. We're covering India for the Chinese now. We're covering China for Brazilians now, which is so great. And so the acquisition of that paper was a very rare chance where they actually hired a bunch of people, 15 people, I think, or something like that, across Asia. And once I was in country... I mean, I think you can understand from a, from an editor's point of view or a newspaper's point of view, sending someone somewhere feels like a really big decision. I was in country at this point... It was just a matter of having me, you know, start writing, and I, I told a little white lie to make it happen. Um, just the
0: white lies of, are all the rage. Yeah, white, these days. white lies are
2: huge. By the way, white lies would be a great title for like the movie about the Trump era, just like white lies. Um, so I applied for jobs at the at the International Herald Tribune office in Paris, and my idea was to kind of move there maybe and be a you know copy editor, whatever whatever you do to start out there, and I. Um, was emailing with these people and they were like, "Well, we'll do a phone interview, whatever." And I, you know, I had no plan to be in Paris, but I just felt like I got to face-to-face this situation. So I, my white lie was, you know, I'm actually happened to be in in Paris, and given oh, the squalor a, I lived in, like, that's a Glen Garry Glen Ross kind yeah, of white yeah, lie. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but I was, you know, told a little white lie, bought the ticket, went to Paris, and went to see them. And of course, that makes all the difference. Absolutely. Uh, you know, IRL, it's all about IRL. And and so I I got the job. I think they asked me to do a trial article. I wrote this trial article, and, and I started.
0: You wrote this in The Times. I don't know if it was exactly at that time, but I think it was around that time. My parents watch me from their perch outside Washington, D.C., and marvel at history's sense of irony, a son who ended up inventing himself in the country they left, who has written of the self-inventing swagger, of a rising generation of Indians in a country where self was once a vulgar word. Do you think that self is still a vulgar word in India?
2: You know, India is so big and in in such transition, I think there is a vast, largely unchanged territory of Indian society that is, you know, where it's still very much a vulgar word. I I think if you are a woman in India, frankly, self continues to be a vulgar word. My mother-in-law has a book coming out called Chup, which means kind of shut up, and it's about the seven habits that Indian women learn to repress themselves and kind of not exist. Um, So self is still very much perceived as a very hostile thing because self is the enemy of community. It's the enemy of caring for others. It's the enemy of putting your children ahead of you or your elders ahead of you. In a system where, frankly, social security is non-existent, where health insurance is not really a thing, where, where you can't you know get a mortgage to buy a house, you need an uncle to buy a house, self-threatens the entire social infrastructure that people need to make a life. That said, what I described in, in India Calling was a profound revolution in India in which that idea of self was breaking in. And at the heart of that idea... There were many things in India conspiring to restrain the self. An ancient culture, um, yes, but also more modern things. I mean, in some ways, the socialism with which the Indian, you know, independent India began is kind of anti-self in a, in a different way. There were kind of religious tendencies and ideas that were repressive of the self. And part of the idea that is creeping into India now that I was able to tell in this, in this book is the notion that people can decide who they want to become, in whatever modest way. That doesn't mean necessarily what it means here. But I wrote about people for whom that meant being willing to make those enemies of your parents to marry someone you love over someone who makes sense to the family. Uh, It might mean, in the case of someone else I wrote about, working your butt off to get a job one town over from the village you live in which to us may seem like a trivial geographic fact, but in that social world is a total kind of Balzacian you know, revolution. And it may mean people being willing to get angry um, about injustices that have long been stoically endured in India. And so now you're seeing the anger of women. You're seeing the anger of people in, in villages that have never had regular electricity. It's suddenly becoming indefensible to them. What was, what was okay was for them before is no longer okay and that causes problems. It causes riots. It causes protests. It causes rage and I kind of celebrate that uh, because it seemed to me that what was being born was this idea that you can make your life.
0: You included your own story in the book alongside detailing how India has changed and stated that doing this was a way of making a big story smaller. In what way?
2: It's interesting, I mean, just as a publishing backstory, I first wrote the early chapters of India Calling and the idea of the book in a way that did not have the word I in it. And so it was a book about five kind of areas of change in Indian life, changing ideas of family, changing ideas of love, changing ideas of work, changing ideas of ambition. And one of the editors who we kind of submitted the proposal to, a guy named Jonathan Siegel at Alfred Knopf, read the proposal, and said, this is in a good direction. I want to work with you on it to make it better in the hope that we'll be able to, to work on it together. But you've got to do two things. He saw a piece I'd written in the Times that was actually that was a personal piece. And he said, "That what you did in that piece, that has to be the voice of the book. Don't tell us how India is changing in general. Tell us how it's your India that is changing for you and how the country is changing, number one. Number two, he said, take these five areas of Indian life that are changing, how families changing, work, et cetera, and pick one family for each of those changes. That ended up being the book. In the end, it didn't work out with Kanoff and John Siegel for that book. But in my third book, we kind of found each other again, and, and he's my editor. But he, it was, it was an amazing thing. Even though he didn't publish that book, it was his concept to make it personal. Um, like, look how you are connected to this.
0: Your next book, The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas, you focused on a brutal story in America that also involved immigrants. After September 11, 2001, a man in Dallas, Texas, walked into a mini-mart, asked the clerk where he was from, and shot him in the face with a shotgun. In the man's mind, this was retribution for the terrorist attack. The victim was a former Air Force officer from Bangladesh, a man named Ray Sudan Bouyan. He was one of three people shot that day by Mark Stroman and the only one to survive. He would go on to forgive his attacker and also champion for him to be spared the death penalty. You initially came across this story as a tiny brief in The New York Times. How did you know there was so much more to this story?
2: I was kind of wrestling for a couple of years um, after my first book with this theme of what was going on in America. And I was writing columns for the uh, newspaper, the New York Times at that time, about what was going on. And my sense was at the time, this was right after the recession, with the country very much still in economic shambles for many, many people. And there was this deeper sense of a turning and of the American dream being in crisis, perhaps not being real anymore, perhaps having never been real for some people, and now being exposed in this more honest way, and so I kind of set about thinking about that for a while and thinking about ways to tell that story. Could I find a pair of brothers, one of whom rose out of poverty and one of whom didn't? Could I, find, you know, you 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 kind of create these fake scenarios and then try to find real people that, and it's interesting, people often don't talk about this. I mean, I teach writing now and, you know, people often don't realize how engineered some of these like beautiful stories are because you, have, you kind of sometimes have to actually think in your mind, where would this idea I'm looking for, where would it naturally occur in a kind, this the same way, you know, scientists look for like natural experiments. And so The more I thought about it, I felt like the fundamental story I wanted to tell that interested me about America in that moment was how resilient the American dream was proving for some of us while it had utterly deserted others of us. It occurred to me that that was what was actually weird about America in this moment. And then one day I came across this little news brief in the newspaper, as you said, that says, uh, you know, Texas executed this guy last night. So far, you know, so Texas, nothing unusual. Um, But the second or third or fourth sentence said, you know, in his final days, his victim, Reis Bouyan, had been fighting to save his life from the death penalty. The combination of the name and the idea of someone fighting to save your life when when they're victim but they're still alive, it just was unusual. That was 9 a.m. By 11 a.m., I had kind of called out to my wife and said, you know, I think this is like the next big thing I'm going to work on. Because I just had this feeling after a couple hours of research that this was this small, uh, it was the Holy Grail. It was the small, bounded story of a couple of people and the people around them uh, over an abounded period of time, in a bounded setting, that if you looked at it closely, could tell you so many other things about so many other things. Um, and could get to this question of how the dream in this country has become so bifurcated, how it really remains true for so many people and not for others. And what I loved about it was that it was the immigrant from Bangladesh who was a Muslim shot in the face who actually kind of ended up embodying the America that still works and still allows people to rise and still gives people chances and still has functioning institutions. And it was the guy who was born with white privilege, who was a man who was self-confident and thought America was the greatest, even though the only part of America he'd visited was Dallas, uh, it was he who actually embodied the America that stopped working.
0: You wrote deeply and movingly about the notion of these two distinctly different Americas, Ray Sudans and Stroman's, colliding, and said that the moral challenge of your generation is to reacquaint these two Americas. Um, it seems especially pertinent in regards to the world we're still living in today, if if not more so. Do you foresee a time when those two Americas can be reacquainted?
2: Let me say two things about that. One, I think I got to see Trumpism without realizing it was Trumpism before there was Trumpism, before he came down. The... Sort of
0: sets the stage for it in a lot of ways.
2: Because when I dug into that world... This was a kind of crime story about which there was no dispute of the crime itself. Everybody knew what happened. There was not just this one shooting, but actually three. And the other two, the guys both died. There's no doubt about who did it. The trial took a day or two. The questions that were left for me to kind of investigate as I wrote the book were questions about why. And by the way, those kind of come up in the death penalty in the penalty phase because in the penalty phase, they actually have to ask not just what happened, but are there mitigating circumstances? You know, why did you really do this? I had to kind of go in and understand, apart from the prosecutor's story of this, what was really motivating this guy? And what I found was that he, yes, was trying to take retribution for 9-11, but 9-11 happened 10 days before he went to war. So we have to kind of go deeper than just 9-11. 9 is the thing that tipped him off. But what I found was a kind of braided white working class male anger that had many, many, many fathers. It was partly this feeling of living in this country that you don't recognize anymore because the Mexicans and the Muslims and the women are all taking over. It's partly this feeling of the economy becoming less prone to mobility. Um, It's partly the effect of Fox News and things like it that have droned into the minds of many people who do not have the faculties, frankly, to know better, this litany of talking points that explain, actually misexplain reality to them. It's this sense of, in a very deep way, of, I think, men who don't know who to be in an equal world and white people who don't know who to be in a world of inclusion and equality. And so all of these forces, which now, as I list them, sound so old hat because they have unfortunately been elevated to the (laughs) highest levels of our national life in the person of Donald Trump. I had to kind of detect them and parse them in the life of Mark Stroman, in the letters he wrote, in the blog posts he ended up sending from death row, in the memories that his children and and friends and ex-wife had of him. So in a way, without being wise enough to realize that it was going to be Trumpism, I got this kind of sneak preview of Trumpism starting in, in 2011.
0: And the preponderance of gun violence.
2: Absolutely. So in terms of is there a prospect for the two Americas to be reacquainted, I think there absolutely is. I mean, i you know, betting my life on it because I just don't think there's another choice. But I think it's going to be really hard. And I think there's a failure to understand on both sides of this question is what a hard thing we are attempting to do as a country. And I think Mark Stroman's life and the backlash gives us some clues. It's easy to make this about there being some racist people in Alabama. It's easy to make this about people not liking Barack Obama because they didn't like having a black president. It's easy to make this about you know, inequality. I actually think this is so much deeper. This country for 400 years has essentially been a country run and ruled by white men. And in a relatively rapid burst of history, that is ending. Right? It's not ended yet. In some domains, it's ending faster than others. In some, it may never end. It may be slower than we think. We don't know. But you know, although all of us may be <laughs> impatient for it to end if you take a different historical view this is actually happening incredibly fast our language the language you and I use are terms we may not have known five years ago for example white privilege how much were you talking about white privilege five years ago right some people in academia were talking about it right how much were we talking about people being cis five years ago how many many people knew that word five years ago or
0: how to pronounce it right
2: People, people very affected by that were talking about it five years ago How many people knew that who were not affected by it or didn't think they were affected by it five years ago? So there's this rapid, rapid, rapid shift in our self-understanding as a country. Who we are, who belongs, who is us, who is American, who is not American. Demographically, we're going to become this majority-minority country. You know, no big country of this power and stature has ever actually done this. America, you know, I say in the book, in The True American, is kind of passing into new hands. And so I say that with kind of two messages. I think the message that the people who don't like this need to understand is this is happening. This is happening. The train is moving. This new America is coming. It's not optional. You can kick out some Mexicans. You can make it a little harder for women in the workplace like the new America is coming and it's going to take its revenge one way or another. It's a question of when. I think what people on my side of it who love the new America and can't wait for it to come fast enough, need to understand, is that, yeah, the new America's coming, but it's going to be really, really hard for so many people to understand who they are in the new world that even if they are wrong, even if they don't deserve to be handheld into the new reality, even if you may feel that they've been fussed over too long and don't deserve to be fussed over as, as equality finally comes, we need to tend to those people who do not understand who they will be on the other side of the mountain. Because if we don't, the next 40 years are going to be brutal. And you're going to have a lot more Mark Strowmans, and you're going to have a lot more Donald Trumps, and you're going to have a lot more rage, and you're going to have a lot more Fox News. All of these things are symptoms of a disease that I think we sometimes don't see, which is that this country is changing so fast, so quickly, so precipitously and fundamentally that it terrifies people. You know, Toni Morrison has this great line, What difference do it make if the thing you're afraid of is real or not? What matters is that we have an unsustainably high number of people who don't know who they're supposed to be in the country that's coming. And I think it is all of our problem to fix this and figure it out.
0: That seems to be part of why Ray Sudden sued the state of Texas to, to try and stop Stroman's execution um, he first stated that his religious beliefs as a Muslim required him to forgive the man. The courts denied his request, and Mark Stroman was executed in 2011. But in your TED Talk about the incident, you stated, Ray Sudan's mercy was inspired not only by faith. A newly minted American citizen, he had come to believe that Stroman was the product of a hurting America that couldn't just be lethally injected away. So where do we go from here? How do we bridge this gap? It's more than even reacquainting each other. It's about moving forward together. And that seems a gargantuan task.
2: You know, the other day I was talking to a psychologist who's a big leader in psychology and relationships and couples therapy. You know, he's become very anguished by what's happening in the country. And he used this phrase that really struck me. Um, He said, you know, we have to make sure we prevent a civic divorce. You know, we're at risk of a civic divorce. I'm, I worry that we're at country. the
0: risk of a civil war.
2: I mean, but civil war may sound I mean, like I think you can have a civic divorce even if there are no guns in the streets and tanks. So to use to continue with his metaphor, I think we need a kind of couples therapy for the nation. <laughs> Let's and get so, Esther Perella on the case. Right, exactly. So, you know, one thing I've been thinking about is, you know, in, in any kind of relationship, reckoning like that. There's a real effort to ask people to just try to go a little bit beneath what the other side is saying explicitly to kind of understand their need, understand the fear behind the thing they're saying. I think for a lot of folks on the right and the kind of Trumpers and those who, you know, want to make America great again, et cetera, the the big thing I would ask them is to think about every time they see, you know, there, there go those young students, Protesting on campus, some speaker. There goes people really worried about bathroom signs, or when they think, frankly, that the Me Too movement has, you know, is illiberal, is is kind of scalping people that don't deserve to
0: overreacting. Right.
2: What I would urge them is to understand what's going on beneath what they're observing, um, and I think if they did that, what they might find is that for all of their belief in kind of what I call great America versus woke America, for all the belief in great America in the American dream being amazing and the values and freedoms of this country being amazing, what a lot of these disparate signs that they may detect, what people are telling them is that actually those freedoms and values have not been evenly distributed. They haven't actually been extended to everybody. That a lot of people walk into a lot of rooms feeling unwelcome. And so what I would say to people in kind of Great America is understand that all these people complaining about something, protesting something, walking out on something, building a movement around something, are actually giving you an opportunity to make America what you think it is, right? They're pointing out bugs that you can fix. They're pointing about out ways in which the story you are very desperately clinging to about your country can be made more true. I think the same goes for what I would call woke America on the left. It's hard to look past a lot of what woke America gets thrown in its face. It's hard to look past the anger. It's hard to look past the racism. I mean, I can't go on TV without being told on Twitter to go back to my country, which is Cleveland, Ohio. There's an incredible amount of degradation and abuse of women in online and offline spaces, as we know. And so it's hard to ask woke America to push past that or do anything but resist that. And yet, I kind of fear that if resisting these things and avoiding them and and, and being safe, keeping yourself safe from them, is the only posture of woke America, is the only focus, then you are fighting the battle without making an effort to win the war. Because I think the only durable safety for people in woke America is to persuade, not simply to resist these
0: threats. In your 2016 TED Talk, A Letter to All Who Have Lost in This Era, you wrote a letter about the haves and the have-nots. You wrote a letter that is very much addressing the people that have so much more than most. And you talk about how language is one of the only things that we truly share. And you go on to say that you sometimes use this joint inheritance to obfuscate and deflect and to justify yourself, but you're really talking about the world at large that has so much more, and to rebrand what was good for me as something appearing good for us when I threw around terms like the sharing economy and disruption and global resourcing. Talk about... Why you wrote that letter, talk about why you took the approach that you did in including yourself when, in fact, you probably didn't need to, and what you feel the reaction has been.
2: You know, I had given a talk at TED the previous year about The True American, and they were having this event also in Canada the next year, and I was not planning to to give a talk, and then Brexit happened. And because Brexit happened that summer in a way that it felt linked to what was going to happen with Trump, it felt like it was part of this populist question around the world. And so what I decided to do was to write a kind of letter of apology from the global elite to all the people who had not only been left behind, but who'd kind of been bluffed into thinking that everything was good, everything was fine, and that all the complaints they had were, you know, made up. I'm in many ways a critic of the people I was kind of pretending to be in the eye. But I, I decided as a kind of literary form to write this letter of, you know, from the winners of the age to those revolting in Brexit who would soon revolt in the election of Donald Trump. But the idea was not to you know, apologize to these folks and say, therefore, you're right about Brexit. The idea was to say that many people in the world seemed on the brink of doing real damage to their societies, to the world order at large. Um, I mean, what Brexit still kind of bodes for the you know 70-year project of European reconciliation is just barbaric. What the election of Donald Trump and his foreign policy now bode for the post-war order that the United States was the architect of is barbaric. The fear in immigrants and people of color and women that have since been undammed. Uh, in some ways by both of those events. Um, It's barbaric. But I felt it was important to say to those people who were revolting that someone understood that the, the revolt didn't begin with their revolt, that they were revolting against something, and that even if the revolt, the substance of the revolt, was wrong in my view, I understood that the America that I'm from played a part in creating the conditions for their revolt and inspiring it. And so I tried to kind of understand what our complicity was, people like me who've kind of lived in the lucky land, what our complicity was in inspiring their revolt in the hope that there might be some taking of responsibility on, on both sides. The response was really interesting and overwhelming. There were a lot of people immediately stood up and clapped and there were a significant minority of you know, the kinds of folks who go to TED who sat on their hands and didn't even clap and were very angry that I had, you know, I said things like, I'm sorry that I've been focusing on immortality while down here your, li- your life was, in some cases, getting shorter. I'm sorry I've been focusing on colonizing space while it was being harder and harder to live here for many of you down here on Earth. And, you know, people people didn't like that message because they liked their little venture capital life extension Programs and their little, you know, moon conquest plans. They don't really care about the state of people around them. But it, it's been an amazing thing. The other, you know, I'll share a story with you. A few months ago, I was in Mexico with some friends, and over the course of a weekend, we were taking time to different meals to like talk about each person's life and things on their mind and struggles. And you know, I was in between these books and thinking about what do I do next, and often having these kind of moments of, ah, is like any is anything I'm doing really connecting with anybody? Does any of it really matter? You know, and we're sitting there. And on this, like, street in Mexico City, and this man walks by with his little son, and he's, like, points at me, and he says, a letter to all who have lost in this era? And I was, like, yeah. <laughs> and and he's, like, and he's, like, looked at his little 10-year-old son or whatever, and he was, like, you know, this is the, remember that TED Talk I showed you about all who have lost in this era? And it was just this most surreal, weird moment. Um, And just this kind of you realize that you have no idea where you're reaching people or how you're reaching them or who's being reached. And I'm often not reaching the people I wish I was reaching, but maybe I'm reaching some other people that I never imagined I was reaching.
0: You've been very outspoken with your opinions about Facebook and have this tweet pinned to your Twitter profile. Mark Zuckerberg will go down in history as a tragic figure and one befitting an age of billionaire savior delusions. He claimed to change the world even as he maimed his country. He pledged to rid the world of diseases while ignoring the disease he was spreading. Tell me a little bit more about why you feel this way.
2: I have spent the last couple of years after The True American working on a new book, and it's not out yet, but it's, it's called Winners Take All, and it's trying to understand the following paradox. We live in this extraordinary age of rich and powerful people trying to, quote-unquote, make a difference, change the world, give back. By raw numbers, we live in the most philanthropic time in the history of the world. If you are a rich person and you're not regularly talking about giving back, you are an outlier today. That said, America is more unequal than it's been in 100 years. Half of Americans have essentially, on average, not gotten a raise since 1979. 1% of the planet now owns 50% of the wealth and 10% owns 90% of the wealth. So we have this paradox of an enormous amount of elite concern and the reality of a system that is as cruel as we've seen in a long time, that siphons almost all the gains of progress up to the very few. And you and I know this because we live in New York and we, we know these people. And what I tried to understand is what is the connection? If all these people are helping, why is the system so bad? And what I started to understand was that this claim of changing the world, and sometimes even the well-meaning intention and activity of attempting to change the world done by winners is actually a critical part of keeping the world the same. These billionaire saviors, those who insist that they must not only try to help but kind of lead the effort to promote greater equality from their perches atop the distribution of power, often insist on changing the world in ways that protect their own privileges Do not disturb the social order. Do not risk anything that they hold dear. So they will do charter schools, but they won't equalize how public schools are funded in this country. They will do lean-in feminism, but they won't do the universal daycare that has been shown across Europe to be actually the thing that allows women to go back to work. They will support Goldman Sachs empowering 10,000 women through some CSR project, but they won't talk about Goldman Sachs costing many more women their homes to what it did in the financial crisis. And Mark Zuckerberg is this embodiment of the man who wears a hoodie, who never calls his company a company, always calls it a community, and always claims to be emancipating someone somewhere, beaming the internet across Africa, emancipating the people of India with free internet that was actually just an assault on net neutrality, using his power to claim that he's this liberator of mankind while in fact he does business like Genghis Khan, while in fact he is wiping out much of the American media industry. Ask anybody who works in media in this country that's ever had a meeting with Facebook, you try to negotiate advertising, or negotiate, okay, how much would you pay us to put our content on your platform? It's a conversation with mafiosos.
0: Why is this happening, why is this? Because they're a
2: monopoly. They're a monopoly, they're a monopoly on social, Google's a monopoly on search, right? And I'm sorry, but, you know, Standard Oil and steel companies and all that of 100 years ago, they were monopolies and they were all broken up and at and But, I mean, it was steel. Yeah, steel is important, but this is our mines. These are monopolies that have total control over like a billion or two mines at a time. These are companies that have declared that if they wanted to, they could probably tip election results. It is insane the power they have. It is nothing like, to me, it is a thousandfold the seriousness of any of the other monopolies that we have broken up in this country. So you ask yourself, why aren't we treating it like monopolies? Why aren't young people who normally get agitated by gross abuses of power, why are they in fact just in love with these apps? Well, the reality is, first of all, many young people are turning away from Facebook, which is another thing. But I think the moral glow... That some of these folks have acquired through this notion of changing the world has been one of the most brilliant strategies in history for companies to not be seen as companies, to rebrand themselves as liberators of man.
0: It seems almost preposterous at this point that we were ever talking about, and I mean we as in the rhetorical we, not you and I, um, Mark Zuckerberg for president or Charles Sandberg for president when in fact... What they have willingly contributed to in terms of the, the situation that we find ourselves now in culturally is is terrifying.
2: And this is not a partisan point. You're absolutely right. It's Zuckerberg. It's Sheryl Sandberg. But it was also Bloomberg, the hankering that people had for Bloomberg to be president, the feeling that everybody had when that five minutes of Oprah wanting to be president. I mean, is Oprah a better person than Donald Trump? Yeah. Would she be a infinitely better president than Donald Trump? Yes. Would she possibly be a great president? Maybe. But I'm trying to point at something deeper, which is that why is it that there's something in our culture that now tells us that the feudal lords of our time are our caretakers, which is fundamentally a kind of medieval idea that human beings finally got rid of a couple hundred years ago. We finally understood that, like, Downton Abbey was not a model for a successful society, and we're kind of all going back to, like, wanting Lord Grantham to, you know, be our president. And it's just a very weird preposterous culture that I have tried to take um, a very gentle axe to in this new book.
0: You started to talk about some of these ideas publicly at the Obama Foundation Summit last year. How did that speech come about?
2: One of the people I was actually writing about in my book, the young woman, um, and I was writing about her senior year at Georgetown and how she decided what to do with her life, because I think that is the moment that a lot of these corruptions happen. And it was kind of narrative of how she wanted to change the world and where she ended up, and she had ended up some years later at the Obama Foundation, and I wrote about kind of her journey, and we got to know each other, and to the credit of the Obama Foundation, they were bringing together you know several hundred change makers, people who kind of are active in their communities, making you know making real change, not the kind of phony change that I that I dismantle in the book, but, you know, people who are in their communities, known to their communities, working through civic life and democracy to make things better. And they wanted to put some challenging ideas on the table. And they, to their credit, said they wanted to start with someone critical of a lot of what was happening in the change-making world. That's not something you hear all the time. So they invited me to to give the opening, the opening talk.
0: In the speech at the Obama Foundation, it was... It was both revealing, I think, some of the faux change making for what it is. But it was also there was also a lot of optimism in it. Um, I want to quote you. You said, "These days, I find myself filled with a strange kind of hope. When times grow dark, the eyes adjust. What I see stirring in the shadows is people realizing that they have neglected their communities in an age of magic and loss." All around, I see people awakening to citizenship. For decades, we imagined democracy to be a supermarket where you popped in whenever you needed something. Now we remember that democracy is a farm where you reap what you sow. And while I do think you are being, I think, appropriately critical of a lot of what's going on, I think the notion of democracy as a farm is, is quite a beautiful thing.
2: And it's happening, you know, whether it's the kids in Parkland, whether it's the Women's March, actually the weird health of our civic life in the Trump era, the record number of women running for office this year, which blows the previous number out of the water, the record number of people running for office at all levels. I think Donald Trump, I'm not sure that we will survive the Trump era intact. What does that mean? I think there's a, you know, a small but in a way significant chance that he could so degrade our institutions and standing in the world and foreign policy that we're I mean I we're not going to go anywhere but I but I th- I think, you know, in a real way that the run could be over in a meaningful way by the time he's gone. I mean I think he could have shattered the norms and you know th- there's not a, there's not a it's not trivial the possibility that this is a a fall from which we won't ever quite recover. That said, I think there's a bigger chance that we will limp through the Trump era and come out stronger than we've ever been because people learned something that he taught us, which is that you are only as good as the country you fight for. And you can't just go make money in the private sector and hope you have a great country. You can't just start a social enterprise doing some little program here and not worrying about the fundamental systems at work in your country. You can't just go create a charter school and not ask questions about what is the public system overall for everybody. You can't just go tell women to lean in and raise their hand more and ignore the structural injustices that Hold women in their places. You can't, you know, go and deplore, oh my God, so terrible, this gun violence in Chicago, without understanding what our society is doing as a whole to people of color and black people and has done for hundreds of years. Uh, All around this country, I think there's actually an awakening where we're taking stock of the real story of this country, what it is and what it's been. And we're actually realizing that you get what you pay for in a democracy and you pay in your effort and your civic love, if you're unwilling to talk to people across divides, you get a country in which people are unwilling to talk across divides. We have collectively allowed our society to degrade, in part because we have individually become complicit in that degradation. And I think what is so exciting about what's happening now is that people are waking up to the utter obligation of citizenship.
0: You state that, as wokeness has percolated from black resistance into the cultural mainstream, it seems at times to have become a test you must pass to engage with the enlightened, not a gospel the enlightened aspire to spread. Either you buy our whole program, use all the right terms, and expertly check your privilege, or you're irredeemable. And then you go on to ask, is there a space among the woke for this still waking and so i was wondering how you would answer that question
2: i think there has to be you know i think i think the loving way to look at this country is to say it's always had high ideals it's always failed to live up to them and it's always tried to narrow the gap sometimes trying harder than other times uh, sometimes doing a better job of narrowing the gap than others but it is a remarkable country. It's a remarkable country that is going through an extraordinary shift in who and what it is, in its very essence. For the most powerful country in history, in the history of human civilization, to be majority minority, to be majority of people from literally all parts of the world is an extraordinary thing. So there's this, a moment for like a pat on the back. We are trying something that is really hard And by the way, like, no European country has had its Barack Obama. Let's be honest. Yeah, people have more generous social welfare and this and that. But we are, you know, in many ways at the very forefront of an experiment about whether you can create a country in which people's heritage is secondary to their character. And as right and righteous as a goal, I think that is, I have no illusions about how hard that is going to be simply because it is hard for people to lose their certainties and lose their spot in line and lose their routines. I mean, people go nuts, you know, when they have to take a different route to work. So imagine what this is going to invite in people. So when I said, you know, is there space among the woke for the waking? I think those of us who want the new America to come need to understand that if we are a closed circle, expecting people to show up woke, show up ready, show up ready to sing and dance in this new country that's coming, uh, it's gonna be a small party. What I think is so essential that we do is figure out how those of us who want that day to come as fast as possible can tell the story in a way that brings people in, you know, that brings in people who are a little scared of it brings in people who don't know what cis means or white privilege is or don't, you know, feel comfortable talking about race or don't think that they are in any way complicit in white supremacy because they don't really understand what it means when people say they are complicit in white supremacy. And when they feel that their neighborhood is not the place they understood it to be, yeah, we can say, you know what, that's not going to change. And you can't just get rid of the immigrants in your Walgreens because you feel uncomfortable. But I think we can also say, but I understand why you feel uncomfortable. And I refuse to change my immigration policy, but I understand why you feel uncomfortable. I think we can do a better job of making space for the people who are limping their way into this new America. In politics, small numbers matter a lot. If 5% of the people who voted for Donald Trump feel like, actually, you know what? No. No. That's a landslide the other way.
0: Let's hope so. I have this last question for you. In 2014, you posted an image of your last book's dedication to your wife, Priya, and you wrote, This won't be the last book I dedicate to Priya Parker, but it is the first. A book is a lot of wild rambling before it is actually a book. From the earliest days, Priya selflessly put aside whatever she was doing to listen to every word of this book out loud as I was writing it. Finish a page or two, read it to Priya. That was the ritual. It's impossible to imagine writing without her. Thank you forever, girl. Now Priya has a new book that is coming out in May titled The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. So my question is, did you do the same for her?
2: I did. Good. I did. (laughs) I I have to after uh, after receiving (laughs) receiving such such immense help. And you know we're kind of we're kind of partners in crime in that way. We we worked on both of these books, kind of sitting next to each other. And um, you know this year is the year of two books and and a child, new baby, baby yeah. uh, an existing, an existing child. So you have a lot of wonderful
0: yeah. things going on. Uh, we have Priya scheduled to be on the show as well, so we'll talk to her about her new book. I'm looking to hear what very, she has to say very, very soon.
2: You should be hard on her. She, you know, tough questions. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to get my big investigative yeah. hat yeah. on.
0: <laughs> and thank you so much. Thank, thank, thank you. you so much for being on the show. Um, thank you for helping us understand the state of the world a little bit better. Thank you. To find out more about Anind Gir go to anind.ly. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: For more information about Design Matters, or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com.